Once upon a time, there was an enlightened man called the Buddha and a wandering ascetic called Vachagota. And Vachagota wanted to find out the Buddha's teaching on the self because the self at that time in the Hindu tradition had a very specific definition. And so he asked the Buddha, is there a self? And the Buddha remained silent. And then he asked, well, is there not a self? And again, the Buddha remained silent. And then Vachagoda got frustrated, shook his head and walked off. As often happens when people talk to the Buddha and didn't get what they wanted. And then Ananda, his faithful attendant, asked him, why didn't you answer him? You know, the guy wanted an answer, and why didn't you tell him? And the Buddha said, well, if I told him, it just would have created a more fixed idea in his mind. It wouldn't have actually benefited, benefited him in any way, because he wouldn't have really understood it with his experience. So I'm going to be talking about the Buddha's teaching tonight on the nature of the self, really as a as an invitation for you to explore and inquire into your own experience. We can hear about this teaching and read about it intellectually, and sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it sounds like complete nonsense. But we it's none of the, t- the teachings are presented here as not as dogma but as a as an invitation for you to look to see is this true what is the nature of the self what is the nature of this thing i call myself once the buddha was asked to to sum up the the essence of his teaching in a single sentence which as you know is probably quite difficult because his teachings are quite vast Um, But he said, uh, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. And I'll talk a little about what that means as the talk goes on. One of the things the Buddha was said to have um, spoke or thought during his awakening was uh, these words. This was sort of on the threshold of his enlightenment. Seeking but not finding the house builder, I traveled through the round of countless births. O painful is birth ever and again, house builder, you have now been seen. You shall not build the house again. Your rafters have been broken down. Your ridge pole is shattered. My mind has attained the peace of nirvana and reached the, every, every, and reached the end of every kind of craving. So here the, the Buddha is using the metaphor of the house builder, that aspect of the mind that constructs the sense of self that builds a whole world, builds a whole story about who we are in our lives. A more poetic way of uh, talking about this is um, this short poem from Li Po, a Chinese poet. The birds have vanished into the sky and the last remaining clouds have drained away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. 
And I love that poem because it gives a taste, a sense of what this teaching is pointing to. Angela Silesius, a Christian writer and mystic, in one of his stanzas puts it this way, God can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. Takes a little while to get that one. <laughs> so, pay attention to what's happening as, you, as you're hearing this talk, because sometimes this talk can really rile the mind up. What does he mean there's no self? You know, I'm here and he's there and what's the problem? And Why doesn't that self be quiet? <laughs> so just notice if, there's, if the mind gets a little more agitated or starts to, you know, machinate or doubt. Just, just notice that. So the reason I want to talk about the, this teaching is because if we pay attention so much of our suffering comes from the misunderstanding of the sense of self. The Buddha talked about is the fundamental cause of suffering. So what is it about this this notion of self-centeredness or this sense of self that causes so much pain? There was a bumper sticker that went round for a while that said, it's all about me. You see that one? It's all about me. And we kind of live that way. It's all about me. Wei Wei, the Chinese philosopher, asked, why do human beings suffer? Because they spend 99% of their time focused on themselves, and there isn't one. It's not an entirely correct statement as far as I'm concerned, but the point is is taken. You know, when you're sitting and walking and you're noticing the mind creates a lot of storms and stories and thoughts and dramas, who is it about? Who is it about? It's not about your neighbor, unless you're not liking them. So when we live with this sense of wrapped up in ourselves, with our lives centered around ourselves, uh, it doesn't lead to the happiness that we think it does. When we live completely absorbed in our own world, it's actually we actually experience it as a certain kind of suffocation, a certain kind of constriction, or a certain emptiness. A lot of people report a sense of emptiness even though materially their lives might be very satisfied. I read a report that in between the years 2000 and 2003, the prescription of antidepressants went up like 46%. Something like that. I know when, I'm, when, I'm, when my life, uh, when there's been periods where I'm just sort of focused on myself, I'm just not that happy. I find I'm more unsatisfied. And when I'm engaged in a way that's more relational and more 
that's focused on something other than my life, my needs, my wants, my world, I'm just much happier. Very simple. When we help each other, when we're practicing generosity, when we're engaged in service in some way, the sense of self kind of expands. Our self-contraction, self-centeredness softens. And we usually feel more connected, more at ease. When our sense of self is very contracted, we often feel very isolated or separate. We can, we, you can feel very separate in a retreat of 100 people. You can feel very lonely or isolated in a retreat of 100 people. When the sense of self is contracted, withdrawn, when it's very strong, when the sense of boundary is very strong. And it's a very painful place. Usually when the self is contracted like that, we feel very small. The world feels large. The problems of the world feel large. We feel very overwhelmed by them. When that sense of self isn't so contracted and we feel more connected, the problems of the world often feel less overwhelming. So you've probably noticed a lot of ways that the, the, the sense of self or this contraction causes suffering on the retreat. The mind has a field day with this idea of self that we try to protect and uphold. And So I'll talk about if some of the ways that um, we, some of the things we get into. So you may have noticed that the mind likes to uh, make ourselves look kind of good. You know, present a good side to the world. Just think about what happens before an interview. How long do you rehearse the interview? How long do you prepare your questions? You think about what you're going to say. You imagine how you're going to look. You imagine the dialogue and the scenario. And usually it's kind of trying to present a certain self-image that will be, a, be liked and accepted and approved of. You know, it's what Joseph talked about the other day of cloning. You know, somebody said today in an interview, when I'm thinking about the future and I'm imagining myself either in an interview or back home or at work, I'm always kind of a star. You know, I'm always fantasizing that it goes really well and I'm you know, really eloquent and people are liking me and... You know, so a lot of our fantasies are about, about ourselves excelling in some way, doing really well. And then when we look to the past with our 2020 hindsight, it's full of recrimination and judgment and criticism. And so there's a, even in that way, there's a way that we elevate ourselves and then we put ourselves down. Or we get into comparing ourselves. Anybody been comparing themselves to each other on this retreat? Who is the slowest meditator? I bet you probably know who the slowest walker is. You know, Who sits the longest? Does this person sit longer than I do? Do they sit more still than I do? You know, we get into a lot of comparing mind with this sense of self. A friend of mine was sitting here some years ago, and I was on that same retreat. It was a three-month retreat. And there was a particularly loud, boisterous man on our wing in, uh, over in uh, Catskills. 
and uh, we, you know, create a certain amount of agitation in the mind, some people's minds. And one day, my friend was doing very slow walking practice downstairs in the bowling alley, and this man walked past. And the thought that came to my friend was, well, at least I've got less self than he does. (laughs) The mind has no shame. (laughs) This is a story uh, about a rabbi. One day a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees, and started beating his breast crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by this example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. (laughs) The Seamus, the the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, Look who thinks he's nobody. So we can get into comparing mind about who has the least sense of self. So who is the most emptiest? The mind will cling to anything to prop up the sense of self, even if it's no sense of self. Or we notice how the mind takes ownership of things. My sitting spot. Don't anybody take my spot, my chair. Or we go out to a... You know, we go out to our walking place in the garden or in a walking room, and somebody's in my walking <laughs> corridor. That's my spot. Gone is the sense of, you know, we're all in this together, and it's all wonderful. It's my walking spot. The mind can also uh, habitually create very self-limiting concepts that are equally constricting. You may notice the, the critic at work on this retreat, the judging mind, coming up with endless views about ourselves. You're like this. You're not enough good. You're not good enough meditator. You're very unmindful. You're kind of too lazy. You're hopeless. Why don't you go home now? And solidifies a sense of self. You're a bad person. You're an angry person. And we believe it. We take it to be true. And usually that sense of self that's being created by the critic is very inaccurate. So pay attention when the critic is at work, when the judging mind's at work. See what kind of self is being created. What kind of negative reinforcement is being created. This is a uh, kind of a comic strip version of how that happens. This is called a checklist of feeling pathetic. <laughs> There's a woman reflecting on, a, on various things. Choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. Make a mo- mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Now that's suffering. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. Resign yourself to believing that from now on this is how you'll always feel. 
So it's kind of amusing and it's kind of tragic because we do that. We compare ourselves, we will live embarrassing moments, we compare ourselves unfavorably. Even if the, the identity that the mind is creating is good, it's also suffering in that any identity that's created is unstable. It doesn't la- nothing lasts, particularly a sense of identity, sense of self. It's always changing. And so there's a certain insecurity comes even if the identity is wholesome, positive because of the fear of how that might change or how it will change. So often we think we're as good as our last fill-in-the-blank, our last game, our last talk, our last job, our last performance, our last business deal. And then there's a way that we create the sense of self through our roles. So it might be, you may take an identity as a parent, or as a child, or as a teacher. Often our identity is through our work. But whatever identity we ascribe to ourselves, if we take it to be ultimate the truth, which we often do, we're limiting ourselves. Because no identity, no label, no role can truly say who we are. Any, any identification in that way is limiting. It's putting ourselves into a box. And we often try to make a lot of effort to live up to some kind of role, some kind of identity. A good friend of mine on the, on the West Coast uh, has this uh, practice he does with his daughter, who's now left home, but they still do this practice where they sit down together, father and daughter, look into each other's eyes, And he'll say, I am not your father. And she'll say, I am not your daughter. She can handle it for about 30 seconds or a minute. Just to see if they can break through that identification of seeing each other as a fixed identity. Because who he is is more than just a father. Who she is is more than a daughter. So a good question to ask yourselves, and maybe we can do this for a moment as a meditation, who would you be, who would you be without your self-limiting beliefs? If you let go, so just do it right now, close your eyes. See if you can let go of any concept you hold about yourself and just tune into your present experience. Who are you now in this moment if you let go of the sense of gender or race or class, if you let go of your history, identification with your body or your mind, who or what is sitting here right now? How old are you? not the years of age. Can you put an age on who you are? Who 
Who are you without your history? Who are you just in this moment? Nisargadatta, a great Hindu Advaita teacher, put it this way. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. And between the two, my life flows. When we look inside and get quiet, we can perhaps touch into that sense that we might be nothing, empty, open, And when we sense into that nothingness or openness, we can see that because of that emptiness, we might be be connected in a very real way to everything. I found it helpful over the years to reflect on moments of peace, moments of deep contentment, Moments of silence, happiness, joy. And paying attention to those moments and the relationship of those moments to the sense of self. Usually in our deepest, quietest, sweetest, most profound moments, the sense of self, the sense of self-grasping, self-identity, worrying and thinking about ourselves, is usually pretty quiet or absent. It's often the very quietening of the sense of self that allows those moments of deep receptivity and openness to be there. I spend a lot of time in nature, in the woods and out by the ocean where I live. And one of the reasons that I like being out there so much is because Nature doesn't self-reference the way humans do. There's no self-referencing happening. When we leave the world of humans, who are fixated by the sense of self, and we go out into the natural world, we are affected naturally by that environment. Because because trees and animals and grasses and rocks and oceans aren't selfing, they're not saying, wow, I'm this really cool oak tree, kind of look at me, you know, I'm better than that bay tree over there. They're just being in their nature, in the suchness of things. And what that allows us to do is to quieten down our own sense of self. There's less of a tendency to or need to coalesce around the sense of self, that the sense of self, the boundary often feels like it dissolves, it softens. We feel a sense of openness or connectedness or naturalness, which is why so many of us love being in nature. Sometimes that can also be scary because when anything threatens the sense of self, our mind, our egoic habit, and experience a lot of fear. But when that's not happening, um, we, can, we can really touch into that, that quality of being when the self isn't the dominant force. And that can also happen when we're listening to music, when we're in moments of creativity, 
at times when we're absorbed in something. It could be writing, art, moments of love. In those moments we talk about losing ourselves. I lost myself in my work or in my art or in the music. So who went? Who got lost? You don't ask that question, but it's, all, it's actually part of our vernacular. So what is this sense of self? This is from Stephen Batchelor from Buddhism Without Beliefs. And uh, it's a very, some pieces in this book that beautifully describe this, this uh, understanding. Self-consciousness is at once the most obvious and central fact of my life and the most elusive. If I search for myself in meditation, I find it is like trying to catch my own shadow. I reach for it, but it's not there. Then it reappears elsewhere. I glimpse it from the corner of my mind's eye, turn to face it, and it's gone. Each time I think I pinned it down, it turns out to be something else, a bodily sensation, a mood, a perception, an impulse, or simply awareness itself. I cannot find the the self by pointing my finger at any physical or mental trait and saying, yes, that's me. For such traits come and go, whereas a sense of I remains constant. But neither can I put my finger on something other than these traits that, however ephemeral and contingent they may be, nonetheless define me. The self may not be something, but neither is it nothing. It is simply ungraspable and unfindable. I am who I am not because of an essential self hidden away in the core of my being, but because of the unprecedented and unrepeatable matrix of the conditions that have formed me. So I think he really beautifully and eloquently describes the, the mystery of uh, this practice of looking for the self, looking for the tangible manifestations, body, mind, sense organs. And yet whenever we look at any one of those things, we can't say that's it. And so the sense that, that sense of self that we're looking to pin somewhere remains elusive. So sometimes in, in the Buddhist teachings there's uh, an understanding of relative and absolute truth. There's a relative understanding, a relative um, use of the word self where we use names, we use, we use labels. We say, I'm here, you're there, my name's Mark, your name's such and such. And it's useful to have that relative language, the relative reality, because we wouldn't function without it. It'd be hard to say who was giving the talk if we didn't have names. And a friend of mine lived in a community where they thought that names were the problem, so they stopped using names. So she remembers watching these two people have a fight. And one of them was saying, this one is having a problem with that one. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't quite cut through the... Didn't quite work. So it's clearly not just about the labels or the names. So clearly we all have a body, we have a mind, we have a personality... And yet, 
that phenomenon that we, you've been paying attention to for the past week sometimes appears very solid, sometimes it appears and is felt and experienced as very ephemeral. When you turn to look at the mind, what is it? Where is it? When you turn to look at a thought or an emotion, or you sense the body when the eyes are closed, it's not as fixed and as solid as we think it is. Yet we construct an idea of me and mine based on this experience, this whole cluster of ever-changing experience. We say, oh, yeah, that's me. This whole body-mind mass, that's me. That's who I am. There's a story of the uh, Sufi crazy wisdom teacher Nasruddin who uh, goes into a bank one day to cash a check. He goes up to the cashier and is signing his check and the, the woman behind the counter says, oh, I need some ID. He says, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. So he goes searching in his pockets. He pulls out a mirror, looks in the mirror. Oh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> and we do that. We do that every morning. We get up, wash our face, brush our teeth. Oh, yeah, there's me. I look kind of the same as I did yesterday. I must exist. Maybe looking a little older, but it's still me. But what is this name, this, the name that we give ourselves, or this word I, what does it point to in your experience? Where, is it, where is, is it in your experience now when you say I? We often point to myself and say, oh, this is me, this is who I am. But where is it? Is it findable, the sense of self, the sense of I? And what about the sense of continuity? You know, we can look at pictures of ourselves from birth to childhood, adolescence, teens, 20s, and onwards. And we say, yeah, that's me. That's me as a baba. And that's me as a boy and a young man and adult. Is it the same person? Is it someone different? Is the eye that was looking out of the world as a one-year-old, is that the same as the eye that's looking out of the world now? Every cell in the body is completely different than it was years ago. And again, I'm throwing out these questions as an invitation to just explore your, your own experience. What is true? What feels true? So how does this sense of self arise if it's being questioned and challenged, yet it seems so true to who we are? It's the thing we most know, in a way, and we most familiar with is the sense of self. It seems to follow us around everywhere. So what are these teachings saying? How does this arise? You know, when I went to school and I was studied clinical psychology and was quite interested in developmental psychology and fascinated by some of the research that was trying to tease out what, ha what happens in the first mm, six, nine months when there's uh, the movement from no sense of separate self to the time when a sense of self arises in a baby. And depending on different theories, um, some say between six and nine months, a sense of self-reference occurs. And, and, and the, 
the way it's described as an image arises in the mind, an, an, an eye image that becomes coalesced and uh, forms an identity, a self-image that gets strengthened by the outside world and then uh, deepens and strengthens as we grow older and becomes very ingrained. But it's something that in the beginning was created. It was, it's a construct. The sense of I, the sense of me as a separate thing, it, it was a mental construct that was created to explain this, the sense of world that's here that seems to be separate from the world out there. We can also notice how the self arises in any moment. We can be sitting and just watching the breath, being very quiet, peaceful. Sensations coming and going in awareness. And then we notice some knee pain, some sensation in the knee, which we identify as pain, as, a, as unpleasant. And then we might notice aversion arising, and dislike, and maybe some very strong aversion or some anger, more frustration. And the sense of what can move from a simple sensation, a thought in the, in the mind, the I thought arises, my knee, my pain, I don't like it. I don't want it. I want to get rid of it. Poor me. I hate this meditation. And so the I thought arises and attaches itself, as it were, to phenomena, to our experience. So we can see that experience as just sensation arising and passing in awareness. Or it becomes a very uh, self, uh, a, a very strong moment of self-grasping. My knee, my pain, hatred, I hate it. And so we've taken birth as a person hating our knee pain. So Joseph often gives this instruction of, in, of when using the noting to note in the passive voice. So rather than noting, um, I'm hearing, I'm seeing, I'm sensing, you note things being known, sounds being known, sensations being known, feelings being known. Known by what? Known by awareness. So it takes the I language out of it and it's and it's it's actually more close closer to what's true that phenomena is arising in the field of awareness. And then when a moment of grasping arises, it moves from just sensation to my, my me, my pain, my mind. It's the same thing that we do to appropriate things. There's the, there's the grasping of I and there's a the grasping of mine. So instead of, so we, we, we take possession of our stuff. When you go out to put your shoes on and someone walks off with your shoes, <laughs> you'll notice a sense of possession and attachment. My shoes. That's my car sitting in the parking lot. That's my house. And again, there's a relative validity to that because we otherwise would all be wearing the wrong shoes. <laughs> And that would be suffering. But notice 
who is it that's owning the, who owns the shoes? Who owns the house? Who owns the car that you drive? Do you actually own it? What does ownership mean? This is my dog. Do I own this being or am I looking after it? Do I own this house or am I a caretaker of it? Temporarily inhabiting it. So not only do we make a sense of self out of this mind-body phenomena, we make a self out of the whole world. We self things. Selfing's kind of a verb. So we self, and the, the most obvious places we do that is with other people. We look out the room, we think, oh, there's a hundred different selves out there. Some of them I like, some of them I don't like, some of them I'm neutral about. Try and look at somebody without creating a sense of separate self out there, separate from you. It's very difficult. I complained once to one of my teachers that this was really hard. I said, it's, it's easier because I've been doing this practice so long to see through the sense of self in myself, to see, to see how that construct arises and how you know, it's, it's illusory. But much harder to do it to other people. And he said, well, you've got to start returning the favor. It's a practice. I often pay attention to this when I'm outside in, in, in the outdoors, and I notice how, self, how I can self things in nature, like a tree or a waterfall or a stream. The label comes up, and it, immediately it's fixed as a thing, as a self, as a something existing separate from me, something, if we look at a stream, what is, where is the streamness in stream? Like, what is the thing that we're pointing to? It's, you know, it's a channel that has a movement of water going through it. But where is the stream? Is there actually a stream there? Can we find the essence of the stream? It's the same when we look at ourselves. We can also notice the relationship between grasping and aversion and fear and the sense of self, how the two mutually condition each other. So have you ever had a bad haircut? Like you've had a bad day at the hairdressers and you come out and the sense of self-consciousness is very strong. There's a very strong sense of self. If you're not sure what the sense of self is, go get a bad haircut. <laughs> and you'll, you'll feel that self-contraction, that everybody's looking at you, everybody knows you've got a bad haircut. And what does that feel like? It feels tight, it feels contracted, it feels separate, it feels constricted, and it feels very unpleasant. The same when we're experiencing fear, also conditions a very strong sense of self. Self and fear, self and grasping mutually co-arise or mutually condition each other. So I always find that statistic interesting about the number one source of fear for people is not death but fear of public speaking because of the exposure of the sense of self. Being exposed people find more frightening than dying. It's kind of interesting.
that line by Lily Tomlin, I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific. <laughs> so we all have a desire to be somebody. Notice, notice that desire. Notice who you want to be. It's a very interesting phenomenon, wanting to be somebody. And then striving to get that, be that, protect that, prop it up. Next time you notice you're caught in a strong desire, fantasy, longing, wanting, notice how it conditions a sense of self. Notice the relationship to a sense of self. Next time you're in a sexual fantasy or you're longing to serve some food at lunch or whatever it is, notice how it creates a sense of self, how a sense of self births in that moment of longing, a sense of me wanting something separate from me. And the same thing with aversion. You're sitting quietly in meditation. Someone starts coughing or breathing loudly or rustling or writing or whatever it is we don't like. Guaranteed one of those things will happen. And when we're not mindful, we can feel a lot of aversion, resistance, anger. Notice this. Notice the sense of self that gets created, the sense of, I don't like this, I don't want this, this person should be quieter. We feel a very strong sense of self in righteous indignation. I'm right, this person's wrong. And so that we can look at the process from the other direction. We're sitting with a sense of self-consciousness. One of my colleagues likes to use the example of being like a... Um, the, when we're in this sort of contracted place of self, we look at the world like a, an amoeba, one-celled organism looks at the world. Can I eat it? Will it eat me? Or can I mate with it? And that's sort of a basic organism. Organ. Maybe there's a few other options, but basically, no, can I eat it? Yes. Can I eat it? Will it eat me? Can I mate with it? It's a basic response, basic you know, primal response we have to things. Maybe we've developed a few more sophisticated ways of relating than that. But, but when, we, when there's that sense of self-contraction, there's a natural movement to wanting to fill... The sense, of, the sense of self has a, um, has a sort of innate quality of lack in it. It's uncertain, it's unstable, it's insecure. And uh, so it naturally triggers wanting something from the environment because there's a sense of emptiness within it. So it triggers a sense of wanting, desire, longing, Something, wanting something from the outside. 
or we naturally experiencing things in the world as a threat, as fearful, as something to be protected against. This is again from Nisargadatta. When you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is, and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love of yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. But when you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it for you are afraid of it. Alienation causes fear and fear deepens alienation. It's a vicious circle that only self-realization can break. So go for it resolutely. When you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it because you're afraid of it. So I want to close with saying with two two things. One is um, just talking a little more specifically about what the Buddha was pointing to when he talked about the nature of the self. So he didn't say there wasn't a self. There isn't a self. He talked about questioning certain assumptions about the self. First he said there's the self, there's no unchanging self. There's no continuity in time of the sense of self. That our inner process, our inner experience is so fluid and so transient. There's nothing that stays around long enough that we can that we can pin a sense of self on, but yet we hold this view that who we are is somehow in changing, unchanging. And he questions the sense of self as being separate. We have this idea that we're a separate entity. But there's no such thing as a separate entity in this world, as we know. You know we wouldn't last for more, more than moments without air, days without water. We're constantly affected in every moment by each other, by sounds, by the environment, by the weather, by the moon. Constantly undermining this idea of this separate identity. He's also challenging the idea of us being independent. We like to think of ourselves as independent in this culture. Again, we're interdependent with so many things. The clothes that we wear, the food that we eat, the water that we drink. Everything that we do and touch connects us with this vast web of life. This idea that we're separate and independent, that the mind likes to hold, is a complete misnomer. He's also questioning this idea of the self having any cont- having a sense of control. <clears throat> he said, if the body was really self, then we would tell it not to get sick, and it wouldn't get sick. We tell it what to do, and it do it. We tell our minds what to do, and it would do it. How much do our minds do what we tell them? You know, if meditation reveals anything, it's that we don't have that much control. 
We don't have very much control at all about what arises in our experience. We do have some control over how we relate to it. And that's where the possibility of freedom arises. So in terms of working with this on the retreat, just some practical things. One is just begin to get curious, investigate. What is this notion of self that's being talked about? What is, who am I? What is this sense of self? Who do I take myself to be? Where do I take my identity from? Do I think I'm my body? Do I think I'm my mind, my thoughts? Do I think I'm somewhere located deep in the heart? Where do you take your sense of self from? As my teacher Punjaji once said, watch the I-thought. Be careful of what the I th- how the I-thought arises and attaches to experience. A thought arises, and the I-thought rises and says, oh, my thought. Sensation arises, oh, my sensation, my body, my pain, my experience. Notice how grasping and aversion conditions the sense of self or how the sense of contracted sense of self conditions fear or desire. This is from um, something that I'm in the middle of writing. Shantideva was a uh, um, 8th century Tibetan, not Tibetan, North Indian uh, teacher um, who wrote some beautiful teachings on bodhicitta and compassion. Shantideva understands that the reason we don't reach out to help others is because of the attachment to the sense of ourselves as separate, that we only reach out in a limited way to those close to us we consider mine like our loved ones. As our intuitive understanding of the illusory nature of the self deepens, we naturally wish to reach out and help. When we don't see anything as separate, the natural inclination is to, des- is to desire to relieve the suffering of others. Just as one hand naturally reaches to attend a wound on our leg, so too we feel the impulse to help those in pain. Compassion moves from being a concept to a natural inclination of the heart. Shantideva writes, I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. So other more practical ways to, to um, in a way, loosen this sense of self-referencing, self-centeredness, uh, is the practice, as Joseph was talking about last night, bodhicitta, of compassion, but also the practice of service, engaging in the world in a way that's not self-referencing, reaching out in connection with generosity, with actions, with doing something to relieve the suffering of others, is a way of expanding the sense of self-referencing. And lastly, just to sit back and watch the movie. You know, there's, a, there's a movie of self, of ourselves and our lives get played out on our mind screen every moment. See if we can see it as in just another phenomena arising and passing in awareness. So let's sit for a few moments.
This is from D.H. Lawrence. We cannot bear connection. We must break away and be isolate. We call that being free, being individual. Beyond a certain point which we have reached, it's suicide. What man most passionately wants is his living wholeness, his living unison, not his own isolate salvation of his soul. I am part of the sun as my eye is part of me. That I am part of the earth my feet know perfectly, and my blood is part of the sea. There is nothing of me that is alone and absolute, except my mind, and we shall find that the mind has no existence by itself. It is only the glitter of the sun on the surface of the water. This talk was given by Mark Coleman at Insight Meditation Society on February 9, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.